Go ahead and grab your Bible and turn with me to Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4. Well, you guys excited to be back in Revelation this new year? All right, you don't have to fake it. Okay, no. No, I'm excited. You know, from now through Palm Sunday, we're going to be spending each Sunday morning going through the rest of this letter. And and I'm excited because we're going to get into some really good stuff, some stuff that I think is going to be impactful in our lives and the life of our church. But i got to be honest. I'm also a little nervous because this is the part of the book where things get kind of (laughs) crazy, Things get a little confusing. There are a lot of strange and misunderstood, even some controversial things we're going to walk through. Which also means this is the part where I might make you a little upset. Now, look, (laughs) I know none of you ever get upset about anything in church, right? (laughs) But here's what might happen. We might get to a particular verse, and the way I interpret that verse might be different from the way you interpret that verse, or what the way I teach it might be different from the way some other well-known pastor teaches it, or that guy who sells a lot of books and knows a lot more than me teaches it. And when that happens, because it is going to happen, we're going to disagree about something. Here's what I want us to do. You ready? I want us all to sit back, take a deep breath, and say these words, it's okay. It's okay. It really is, okay? Because there are about a million and one different interpretations and thoughts about Revelation. (laughs) There, There are some things that just aren't very clear. So good and faithful Christians come to different conclusions. And again, that's okay. As long as we get the essentials down... Like the the belief that Jesus is coming back, that God is in control, that we're going to be with him forever. As long as we can agree on that, then we can disagree on these lesser things. Like what all these images mean and and the timing of certain events that are going to take place. The key is that we hold these less essential views on the end times with humility and understanding. (laughs) No one has all the answers. If you come across someone who says they do... or that they've unlocked all the secrets of Revelation, you should run. That person probably has also got some oceanfront property to sell you in Kansas. The truth is, we don't have all the answers. We don't. So we hold certain views more loosely than others. Understand that we may be wrong. We may need to go back to Scripture and reevaluate what we think. I may be wrong. My wife would tell you that's true quite often. But seriously, seriously, I want to encourage you, as we walk through the rest of this book, let's do it with humility, with wisdom, and with a heart for God's central message and revelation. Although there are some things that aren't very clear to us, I do believe God's central message in this book is quite clear. Remember when I said when we first started this series I said that God did not give us the book of Revelation so that we could have something to debate or argue about or be confused about. And he didn't give us this book to tell us exactly how and when Jesus is coming back. But God gave us Revelation to make this one big point. Here it is. Fear not, Jesus is on his throne. 
That's it. Like, that's the main idea, and it's important that we don't let the confusing details overshadow the one clear message. Fear not. Jesus is on his throne. And that message is going to be abundantly clear today as we look at Revelation chapter 4. Now, before we walk through that, let's kind of recap where we've been. It's very important that we keep the opening three chapters of this book in mind as we look at the rest. The, the letter opened with John stating that this letter is a vision given to him by Jesus. It's a vision for the church to encourage and comfort them as they face trials and persecution. John then receives seven letters from Jesus to seven churches in first century Asia, and each of the churches had a particular need that Jesus addressed, but they all kind of end with the same theme, the idea of keep going, press on, endure, and in the fall, we finished up those seven letters. And now as we jump back into the book, we're in a new section. John is still writing to these same churches. He still has the same goal in mind of helping these believers in their time of trouble. But now, rather than just sharing a message, John's going to begin sharing his visions, which makes things fun. <laughs> so let's read together Revelation chapter 4. Would you please stand in honor of reading God's word. Revelation chapter 4, starting in verse 1. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God, and before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind, the, the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne. And worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. And by your will they existed and were created. Amen. You can have a seat. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> it's so important for us as we think about this to understand first off that this is a vision. Okay, John says he was in the spirit. So this was a supernatural experience where he sees this open door in heaven. He hears the same voice that he heard from chapter 1, which we know is the voice of Jesus. And Jesus tells him, says, hey, come up here. And I'm going to show you what's going to take place after this. Now, 
There are some who believe and argue that this first verse, Revelation 4.1, is where we see an event taking place that's called the rapture. They believe the church is going to be secretly raptured or taken out of the world before the tribulation begins. And they view those words come up here as Jesus calling the church up to heaven. That They see John as representing the church. So when he's taken up to heaven, well, that must be the church being raptured. And so from this point on in the letter, those who make that argument, they would say that the church is, is not here. But they're in heaven while everything else takes place on earth. Personally, I, I disagree with that. I don't believe Revelation 4.1 is meant to be a picture of the church being raptured. And, and honestly, it's, it's because I just don't see it. Uh, rather, I believe this is simply John being shown a vision of heaven. That's it. And so that means that I hold the view that the church is present throughout the book of Revelation and even throughout the tribulation. Now, <laughs> that may cause some of you to think, well, what about the rapture then? When, when is that going to be? And you're saying that we're going to be present, if we're here, through all this horrible stuff going on. I mean, what's going to happen to us? And Others of you may be thinking, what in the world is a rapture and a tribulation and why are you speaking Christianese? Look, we're going to get there, okay? But I'm not going to spend all our time fleshing that out this morning. It would be a really, really long sermon. But instead, Pastor Derek and I, uh, we knew that this was going to be something we'd have to address at a certain point. So we actually recorded a podcast, shameless plug. We recorded a podcast that's going to come out this week in two parts, one this week, one next week, where we're going to break down all the different views of the rapture, the tribulation, and the millennium. And we even, believe it or not, we even shared our own personal views on the matter. It's just going to break the internet. No, um, but I encourage you, go and give that a listen this week. If you don't know how to access a podcast Give me a call at the office, send me an email, I'll be happy to, to show you. It's free, you can listen on your phone, your computer, and that's really going to help you kind of wrap your mind around some of the different views that people take with this book. But today, we're going to focus on the main point of this text, which is God on his throne. Why does John receive this particular vision? Well, looking at the context of the letter, we know John received this vision to encourage and, and strengthen the believers in times of trouble, as we said, these, these believers are facing difficulty and temptation and even persecution. And this vision is, is what sustained them through it all. And I believe it's what will sustain us as well today. So based on this passage, let me give you two things that we should do in times of trouble. Here's the first. In times of trouble, remember the throne. Remember the throne. John is one of the few people in the Bible who receive a vision of heaven. And his account is similar to two other guys who also got a vision of heaven named Isaiah and Ezekiel. And it's interesting is despite living in different time periods, the visions from these men are remarkably similar. They all kind of point to one thing that is central in each of these visions, and it's God on his throne. That, that's really what heaven is. So often when we think about heaven, we think about clouds or harps or streets of gold or mansions. But when the Bible talks about heaven, it focuses on the glory of God on his throne. And just like Isaiah and Ezekiel did, John attempts to describe what he's seeing. He's forced to use human language to describe a divine reality so we can imagine how difficult that would be. 
Because we know there are some things that words just can't describe. Think about this with me. What is the most beautiful, the most extraordinary, the most amazing thing that you've ever seen with your own eyes? Think about that. Maybe your mind goes to some meaningful moments in your life. For me, I think about, you know, the doors at the back of the church opening up, my wife coming down the aisle on our wedding day. I think about my two children being born. Maybe for you it's something related to family and and being together. Or maybe your mind goes to something incredible that you witnessed in nature like an amazing sunset or looking out over the Grand Canyon or standing on a mountain. Or maybe it's a moment where you or someone you love achieved something they'd worked so long for and it was just that gratification of of accomplishing something big. All those things are great. But the reality is none of that compares Nothing compares to seeing God on his throne. There is nothing that could be more glorious, more beautiful, more awe-inspiring than seeing the glory of God. I think if we could see this vision for ourselves, man, how, how different things might be. Because we often have a small vision of God. We tend to shrink him down into manageable terms because it it makes us feel more comfortable. We don't really want an all-glorious, all-holy, limitless God, a God who might judge us, a God who might require something of us, a God who might have wrath. Many of us, we, we want a cartoon God or a magic fairy God or a grandpa on the rocking chair on the back porch kind of God. But we desperately need to see God, not as we want him to be, but rather as he really is. There's a famous quote from A.W. Tozer I love. It says this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. How we view God, how we think about him is so important. It, It shapes us in more ways than we know. So our goal as Christians is to to think of God, to view him rightly as he is. And this vision helps us to do that. Look with me at at verse 3 at some of the details here. Verse 3 says, And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. John, he's he's trying to describe what he's seeing, and he's using this language that is familiar to him from Isaiah and Ezekiel. It's kind of giving words to this vision. And he describes God as as having the appearance of jasper and carnelian and emerald, rainbow. and, And this is kind of weird to us, but in the ancient world, These were stones that were viewed as as very precious and valuable. They represented beauty and honor. These were some of the stones that the high priest wore on his breastplate. So this image of God, it's it's one of radiant, bright beauty. It's extravagant and and colorful and majestic. Then in verses 5 and 6, we we see lightning and thunder and, and fire from the throne. This should remind us to the way, of the way God revealed himself to the Israelites on Mount Sinai. It's this display of God's power and authority, and it's loud, it's, it's terrifying, it's dangerous. 
Then John sees this, this sea of glass like crystal just emanating around the throne, which speaks to, to the transcendence and the depth of beauty of God. And as we move out, we, we see surrounding the throne is two groups of people, uh, two, well, two groups of strange and mysterious beings. Look at verse 4. The first group is, is 24 elders sitting on 24 thrones. Who are these elders? Well, that's a great question, and uh, if you know, please let me know. Um, I'm only slightly kidding. <laughs> There's a lot of debate on who these guys are. Uh, some say they're angelic beings. Some say they're humans. I tend to think they're human because the title elder in Scripture usually refers to men. They also have three qualities about them, things that Jesus promised the seven churches at the beginning of Revelation. They sit on thrones. Uh, they wear white garments and have crowns. Jesus promised those who conquered would wear white, have crowns, and rule with him. So I believe these 24 elders represent the people of God. And think about that number 24. We're going to see there's a lot of numbers in Revelation, a whole lot of numbers. And, and the numbers do mean something. Uh, they don't mean as much as some people want them to mean. Some people get carried away with it. But, but think about it. In the Old Testament, there were 12 tribes of Israel who represented the people of God. That's 12. In the New Testament, there are 12 apostles who represent the people of God in the church. That's another 12. So, so some believe 24 represents the entire history of the people of God before the throne. And, and, and I'm, I'm comfortable with that, but I, I don't think it's abundantly clear. The second group we see surrounding the throne is even more strange. It's four creatures with six wings covered in eyes. One that looks like a lion, one like an ox, one like an eagle, and one with the face of a man. Now, growing up in Tennessee, I saw some strange critters. <laughs> but I don't think I've ever seen anything quite like this. What are these things? Well, these creatures are very similar to what Isaiah and Ezekiel saw in their visions of God, too. They're, they're, they're similar to what the Bible calls cherubim and seraphim. What we know is that these are a special class of angelic beings who serve a role in, in, in God's presence. And these four, it seems that in Revelation, they, they lead worship in the heavenly throne room. But what about the animal faces? Is that a dramatic effect or what? Well, it's believed that these creatures symbolically represent all of God's creation, including the animal kingdom. All of creation was created to worship God, and we, we see that displayed in these four creatures as they worship around the throne. So, so that's all the different little pieces of action going on. And as we've examined each piece, let's step back and see the whole. That's the way John would have seen this. It was one big scene. What is this vision of God's throne room meant to convey to us? What is the point of John seeing all this? Well, let's remind ourselves. The goal of this letter is to comfort and encourage followers of Jesus who are facing times of trouble. They're living in the midst of a hostile culture. They're, they're facing great temptations to compromise. They're even being persecuted and killed. How would remembering the throne have helped them? And how can it help us today? Well, this vision helped these believers, and it helps us today by doing something that we often need. <laughs> and that is a change of perspective. 
a shift in our viewpoint. This is what happened to John. Remember, he's exiled on the island of Patmos. He's seeing the churches he loves suffer. He's seeing Christians who he may have known be persecuted and killed and live in difficulty. And Jesus changes his perspective by showing him heaven. We have the same struggle. Here on earth, we often get so focused on what's happening right in front of us, our busy schedules and the circle of people that maybe we have to take care of or interact with and our day-to-day challenges. And, and, and we are tempted to think that that's all that life is. It's just this day-to-day grind and just get through another week. What we need is a change in perspective. We need to see that Despite what's going on in front of us, there is a heavenly reality that we cannot see. We need to shift our viewpoint from earth to heaven. We need to see our world the way that God sees it. Right now, there is a God who sits on his throne. And he is clothed in breathtaking beauty and endless color and light And he rules with thundering and booming power. He is surrounded by all of creation, human, angelic, everything else being endlessly worshipped. Like that image, it should leave us in awe. Like it should cause us to to step back, to, to stumble, to be blown away by the glory of God. Because there is nothing more beautiful, more dazzling or jaw dropping than God on his throne. And it's interesting to note, there's no one above him. What do all the people do in his presence? They fall down. They bow before him. There's no one who even comes close to rivaling him. He's he's matchless in power and authority. And this God, this same God who is endless glory and endless beauty and power, it's the same God. That created you and loves you and is orchestrating the events and details of your life. He is infinitely sovereign and yet he is infinitely good. And this is where our comfort comes from. This is where our encouragement comes from. This is where our confidence comes from. This is how no matter what happens in this life, we keep going. Because our ultimate reality is not found in our circumstances or in our troubles on this planet, but it's found in the never-changing, all-inducing throne room of God. So in times of trouble, we we remember the throne. Secondly, in times of trouble, we remember to worship. Remember to worship. Once our perspective is changed, once we see God as he rightly is, once we catch a glimpse of his matchless glory, there is only one thing to do. Like There's only one response, and it's the same response that everyone has in the presence of God. It's bowing down in worship. Look with me at verse 8. This is what the, the four creatures do in the throne room of God. It says, day and night... They never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Then the elders, when that happens, they they fall down and they throw their crowns before the throne. And they say this, look at verse 11. They say, worthy are you, 
our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. And by your will they existed and were created. The elders and, and the creatures, they, they worship God for many things. But there's three attributes in particular that they highlight for us. God's holiness, God's worthiness, and God's sovereignty. Let's think through those for just a second. First, his holiness. Just like Isaiah chapter 6, the, the creatures do not stop saying, holy, holy, holy. In Jewish culture, to repeat something three times like that symbolized total and completeness. God is not just holy, but holiness is, is central to his person. Holy means distinct and, and separate. God is not just better or greater. No, he is completely other. He is distinct and unique among all the universes in his own category. We can't compare things to him. And as a result, he is completely pure and good, untouched by the evil and sin in the world. Next, the elders worship God for his worthiness. He is worthy to receive glory and honor and power. This does not mean that we are giving God something he does not have already. It's not that we're adding anything to him. He has all glory, honor, and power now. But praising God's worthiness is recognizing that he rightly deserves those things. It's like bowing to a king. It's giving God what he is rightly due. He is worthy of anything and everything we could give to him. And lastly, the elders declare God's sovereignty. The sovereignty of God is his right and power to do all that he decides to do. It is his absolute authority and control over all things. As the elders state, God not only created all things, but he created all things by his will. He chose to create, and he chooses now to, to keep things in existence. That is sovereignty. So what do these three big theological attributes of God have to do with us down here? What do they have to do with our times of trouble? How does worshiping these three things about God help us? Well, asking that question is like asking how does water help thirst? Knowing God and worshiping him as he is, is the exact remedy to difficulty in the Christian life. Let me show you how this, this plays out. Knowing that God is holy helps us because it means that God is separate from the brokenness of this world. And as we worship his holiness, we acknowledge his perfection and his work to restore all that's gone wrong. He is holy, 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 and his holiness means that he alone can help us. Knowing that God is worthy helps us because it means that God is better than anything we might lose in this life. He's worthy of any suffering or persecution we might face. And as we worship his worthiness, we declare that God is enough. He's all we need because he is worthy of worship. And finally, knowing that God is sovereign helps us because 
It means there is meaning and, and purpose to our times of trouble. These aren't just happenstance or bad luck. No, God is using all things to glorify himself and make us into the image of his son. He is sovereign and in control. Man, like, Do you see how this picture of God affects our attitudes and our actions in times of trouble? We might go from pouting or fearing or complaining to worshiping. This is why the Bible tells us these crazy things like, hey, count it all joy when you face trials and rejoice in your suffering. Because when we know who God is, we become those crazy people singing in the middle of a storm, praising God in the dark of the night. We, we worship not because we're naive or oblivious, but because we've seen the one true God seated on his throne. And that's the lasting image I want to leave us with today. That's the image that John wants us to carry with us as we go through the rest of this book. While we move and, and trek through Revelation and we see some difficult things, some disturbing things, this vision right here is going to be our foundation. God is seated on his throne. So let's take all these pieces, let's put the puzzle together, let's step back, and let's leave here with one truth on our hearts and minds as we start a new year. That's the God on his throne. God is on his throne, and that will never change. He was there before clocks turned around before the first star had ever shone before any single living creature had even taken a breath and he will be there forever God is on his throne and, and no one and nothing can remove him from it God is not threatened or mocked he isn't surprised or confused 2020 did not rattle his throne or ruin his plans through famines and wars attacks and scandals powers and pandemics he's still there no matter who's in the Oval Office or the Supreme Court or the Senate or any other seat of power, God's still on his. No matter what, he cannot and will not be moved. Yet here's the best part. That God is the same God who loves you. It's the same God who sent his only son to the earth to take the form of a human to suffer and die on the cross in mine and your place. Who was raised from the dead and ascended back to heaven so that we could have a relationship with him. And now he's the same God that actually invites us to come close as his children. He invites us to, to trust him and, and know him as a father with, with all the smoke and the lightning and the thunder and the fire. We get to walk right in to his presence because of Jesus. And in return, he, he comforts us. He helps us. He's not burdened by us. He wants to help us in our times of trouble. So let's remember the throne. Let's remember to worship. In fact, that's what I want us to do right now. There's no way that we could end our time together with this passage and not respond in worship. So I'm going to pray, and I'm going to invite Jeremy and Lisa to, to
to come up and, and lead us in a song of worship. And then I will um, come back and close out our service. But let's pray and then let's worship the Lord together.